Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X for Comic Book franchise as it begins the multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico. Hope you survive the experience. This is a great, exciting day here at all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts. And why do I say that? Because we are revamping and relaunching to match the revamp relaunch of the series. This wasn't just a change in cast. This was a dynamic change in format for the series as much as anything else. The stories changed, the protagonist changed, the stakes changed. In fact, it wasn't too far from this point that the new mutants were introduced. And as a matter of fact, I have kept this from Jonah until this very moment. Jonah, in today's reading list, you will meet your first new mutant. What? Who? Karma is the first new mutant. Oh, okay. Now I know who it is. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, this is a massive shift for us on a lot of levels, and I couldn't be more excited than to start things off with you, Jonah. It just makes sense for our science boy to help us kick things off with the X-Men's resident science genius, Kitty Pride. So there was so much going on in the Dark Phoenix saga, and everything was so crazy, and we had to talk about it for so many episodes to get out all of our feelings. And then we come into this one. And it is a decidedly more chill atmosphere. Yeah, we go from heavy action drama, like Emmy Award winning, to slice of life. Very casual, very relaxed, very much a breather for everyone to catch up before we can get back into the much deeper, harder storytelling that the Dark Phoenix saga was. I think that's a really great way to look at it. This just becomes so slice of life. And in a way, I'm really into I have no problem with the slice of life that this is. It's an exciting time for the X-Men, and it's a really cool time to be a fan, because so much of what they're doing is so different than what we'd become used to, but it was still dynamic, and it was still exciting, and it was still engaging. I know that I was really excited to see Wolverine finally confront everything he left dangling that we constantly mocked that he left dangling. I am too. It's really something to get back into the story. It's something that we just talked about in the last episode. I'm just really excited to see what life after Jean means for the X-Men and what that means for the dynamic now that they have the new cat on the block, if you will. And she changes everything. It's unbelievable because as much as they joke that Kitty is going to get demoted back down to being an ex-baby and be forced to join the new mutants, Kitty Pride never really loses her footing as an X-Man. She is tried and true an X-Man despite there being new mutants that are older than her. It is definitely a very different book because Scott Summers and Jean Grey made likely protagonists to tell the story. But Scott Summers, Kitty Pride, and kind of a combination of Aurora and Logan, make for really dynamically different protagonists than we're used to. And I couldn't love this era more. 
So it's really exciting that we're finally kicking it off. And we're also kicking off some brand new segments. We're going to have some awesome recommendations for you guys in the Marvel Unlimited app, as well as some amazing choices at your LCS. We're also going to have some cool new segments and correspondence that I can't wait to get into all of that later. Jonah, it's been so exciting to watch our little baby grow, and this is essentially season two. Just like the X-Men are evolving, we're evolving right alongside with them, though the X-Men tend to take a little bit more of a slower pace when they evolve, and we're we're just jumping into it. And one of the things I love about dynamic time symmetry, Uncanny X-Men, as we know it, only actually got that uncanny moniker back in 142. So this is exactly the right time to add Uncanny back to the title of the show and celebrate this strange title full of the strangest teens of all time. Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants Reading List Today we'll be taking a look at Marvel Team Up 100, which is two stories. The first of which, which is co-created by Claremont and Miller, written by Claremont, with art by Miller and Bob Wiak, where Spidey and the Fantastic Four team up to help a young psychic mutant save her family from her evil uncle. The second story was written by Claremont, co-created by Claremont and Byrne, with art by Byrne and McLeod, where Storm and Black Panther work together while recounting their first meeting, and there's another damn evil robot. We will also be covering Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 4, which is written by Claremont, with art by Romita and McLeod, where Nightcrawler's past comes calling when he's abducted on his birthday. The villain turns out to be Kurt's adoptive mother seeking vengeance for her son. Kurt's adopted brother, whom he slayed years earlier. Kurt's adoptive sister intervenes, reveals the truth, saves the day, and explains she's been secretly dating Kurt. Yo boy. We will also be covering Uncanny X-Men number 139 and 140, co-created by Claremont and Byrne, written by Claremont, and art by John Byrne, where Kitty's a new kid in town while Logan and Kurt head out of town. Aurora takes Kitty to meet her dance instructor, Stevie. Kitty and Stevie bond right off, leaving Aurora jealous. Wolvie and Nightcrawler join up with Vindicator, Shaman, and Snowbird against the Wendigo. A fierce battle later, Logan is finally cleared of his debt to Department H from Giant Size Number 1. Right off the bat, the first thing I realize when we're talking about Marvel Team-Up 100 is, while this may be a milestone 100th issue for Marvel Team-Up, it's still a milestone issue for us as well. We've read an enormous amount of Marvel Team-Up at this point. In Episode 7, we read Marvel Team-Up 4, 23, and 38. In Episode 11, we covered the annual... 53 through 55 and 65 through 66. In episode 14, we covered 69 and 70. And in 16, we covered 89, finishing things off in 18 with Marvel Team-Up number 90. All in all, we've read 12 issues of Marvel Team-Up and an annual. This issue, number 100, by far the best issue of Marvel Team-Up we've encountered. I don't know if I fully agree it is the best, because I still pretty much enjoy the Nightcrawler Spider-Man one where they're at the circus a little bit more. But I will say this was absolutely a step up from most of the Marvel Team-Up we've had read. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna be okay with it, but I don't know how you can look at an issue by Frank Miller and not walk away going, nope, that's the best thing, that's the best thing, that's the Daredevil fanboy in me. But for real, this issue is really beautiful. I love how dynamically Miller shows off his artistic ability. It's incredible. And I actually really like that this one felt like a Spider-Man Marvel team-up. As much as I enjoy the Nightcrawler issue, I think the reason we enjoy the Nightcrawler issue is because we keep calling it the Nightcrawler issue. It was clearly a Marvel team-up about the character that we were reading it for. We were reading it for Nightcrawler. This one opens on five pages of Spidey in which he's fighting a nameless psychic 
powerhouse, and they set things off in this situation where Spider-Man is already in danger. He's already behaving strangely and fighting off a psychic presence. It's really interesting and different from what we've had. You hit the nail on the head with this, that why we enjoy the Nightcrawler issue so much is, as you said, we're calling it the Nightcrawler issue. Marvel team-up was more to showcase Spider-Man and the different heroes he would encounter. This definitely does feel like a Spider-Man issue with the Fantastic Four thrown in to help him out and save the day. I think this is a really interesting issue in where one thing that I really liked for the plot of this is that the reason why Spider-Man is targeted is because of the smear campaign of J. Jonah Jameson in the news and then calling Spidey a menace. Spider-Man was mind-controlled because the person who mind-controlled him thought that because he's a villain, he can get away with something. No, people would expect, oh, Spider-Man's doing evil. But they didn't expect Spider-Man to be a hero and to be stopped by heroes. And I thought that was a really interesting detail to use from Spider-Man's backstory. And that so lines up with everything we've been discussing. Funny enough, we keep calling Marvel team-up the Nightcrawler issue, but that wasn't even the first Amazing Spider-Man Nightcrawler team-up we read. We read Amazing Spider-Man 161-162 by Len Wein early on. That contained the most... Bizarre J. Jonah Jameson is a menace to society stuff where he's trying to build the Spider Slayer. It was just insanity. Sometimes I'm not sure who's more evil, J. Jonah Jameson or Arcade. Yeah, you know what? Maybe they're one and the same. Have we ever seen J. Jonah Jameson and Arcade in the same room at the same time? Well, that's definitely going to be one for the mailbag. Somebody please write in and tell us if J. Jonah Jameson has ever appeared alongside Arcade. Because I feel like that would be the worst thing that has ever happened to Spider-Man. And speaking of terrible things that happened to Spider-Man, Spider-Man being pitted against the Fantastic Four is really interesting. This being Marvel Team-Up 100 and featuring two already huge creators in Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, it makes a lot of sense that this would even feature kind of like a weird little reintroduction to Spider-Man. I couldn't help but notice that they were trying to tell me who Spider-Man was throughout the first few pages. Karma, as we will come to find out, is interacting with Spider-Man's powers and abilities like somebody new to the story. So if Marvel Team-Up 100, this dynamic cover featuring the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man fighting with this crazy, powerful force just sitting in the middle of it all, it's this really dynamic cover that would draw you in and it features a popular artist at the time and it features Chris Claremont writing, which not that you would know who that is if you're new to the comic medium, but if you're an X-Men fan, this might pull you in, especially considering there is a brief X-Men appearance. I felt like this had everything I needed to understand what was going on, kind of in the Marvel Universe at large. One of the things that Marvel does, Marvel's not the only person or group guilty of this, is that they tend to have heroes placed in the same location. For Marvel, it's New York City. There are 50 billion different heroes and teams that reside there. So I actually think it's pretty interesting that we have an issue that shows three of the main ones being Spider-Man teaming up with the Fantastic Four, and we get a small cameo of the X-Men, who don't add anything else to this issue outside of a cameo that you go, oh, I know them, which I think it's nice. I didn't mind their cameo. This is interesting because something I didn't notice until you just pointed out, Nico, is that you're right, this almost reads like someone's introduction to the Marvel Universe. It's pretty easy to follow if you haven't read any Marvel before and this is the first thing you ever picked up because it does, it gives you exactly what you need to understand what's going on at the moment. Maybe you won't get every single little detail, maybe you won't understand everything later or right at that moment, 
But you will, I think it might inspire someone to be like, wait, I want to know why, how did they get there? Who are the Fantastic Four? They look cool. They have cool powers. Oh, Spider-Man, he's a menace? Wait, I thought he was a superhero, you know? I think it does give those interesting questions. I think it sets up Shan pretty well, as well, because this is, I think, one of the first times in a Marvel team-up where we have the antagonist at the beginning be someone who you do, I genuinely believe, I should feel bad for. Certainly one of the first in our reading. There's been a lot of Marvel team-up that we haven't covered, but from the limited exposure we've had by the connections to the X-Men and the Uncanny X-Men franchise, there has been a wealth of crappy, disposable villains, forgettable sidekicks. So this really is one of the first ones where I feel like the villain from the outset ultimately becomes someone that I not only appreciate, but I'm eager to see more from. I also think one of the most incredible things is Miller is a master of filling space. And again, this is going to be some Daredevil fanboying, and I'm so sorry. I try to keep it to a minimum on this show. This is about X-Men, and I try to keep my passion for Miller out of here. But Miller never draws what he doesn't have to. He is very specifically about filling space the way it needs to be filled for the reader's eyes to move where they need to move. He never wastes time creating complex backgrounds that won't support the narrative. In fact, Karma's power signature, as well as her brother's, is so simple but so effective. Whether it's the red version on the cover or the blue or pink versions we see throughout the issue, it's fascinating how much he can do with so little. As it is fascinating with how much Claremont can do with so little. Claremont writing this and making such a fatherly read especially after 138, Reed Richards is the kind of dad that Charles Xavier never was to the X-Men. Oh, I absolutely agree. It's a very stark difference, you see. And actually, you can kind of see how harsh and a little bit cold Charles is in his small cameo. You see him yell and berate the X-Men for not performing how he wanted. And as I'm reading the dialogue and looking at the art in the scene and picturing it, getting everything together, I... I can only comment and say, no, Charles, how do you expect them to get out? You put them in a situation, you're telling them to use their powers in creative and different ways, but everyone has a basic survival instinct. But then we see the foil of Reed Richards, who's very welcoming to Spider-Man and is easily understands that something isn't right because he's not acting like himself and is willing to talk to him, make sure that he's okay, make sure his team's okay. It's a really welcoming difference that we have compared to Uncanny. And I would also say that in the comparison to Uncanny, the stakes on this issue are extraordinarily high. Karma's love for her younger brother and sister is a driving force for her character throughout her character's lifetime. And this battle against her brother sets things off how it needs to be set. She's willing to do whatever it takes, even battle family. He is evil and she is going to do whatever it takes to stop him. Because he clearly loves killing and loves the perversion of good. Karma's powers inherently go against Xavier's code, which Xavier loves to go against, so who can blame her? But Karma does not use those powers maliciously. As you pointed out, she even works to possess the right people so no one has to be put in jeopardy, believing Spider-Man would be her best candidate. Karma taking matters into her own hands and ending this kind of 
tiresome cycle of repeated heroes being possessed and forced to battle as chess pieces in this weird custody battle. All said and done, I love this issue. I love the art. I love the writing. I'm a big Karma fan, and I think this is a standout way to start off our new season of Uncanny X's for Podcast. I absolutely agree. Karma came out very well. I'm very interested in her character. In the very little that we got, we did get a lot about her, but I think it was the right amount to make someone interested without throwing up everything about them and then giving away all your secrets. I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with her on New Mutants because... It's something that you just pointed out that I didn't think of. Her power set goes directly against the teachings of Charles Xavier. What would he expect her to do? Not use her powers? That's going to be a really interesting dynamic that I can't wait to get to. Well, you're not that far off as the New Mutants and the Uncanny X-Men first sync up at issue 167. Now, an interesting note about Marvel Team-Up number 100 is I have it collected in two separate locations. The A story featuring Karma is collected in the New Mutants Renewal Epic Collection, while the B story featuring Storm and the Black Panther is collected in the Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Volume 2. So it's kind of interesting I had to read this one issue in two separate volumes to get the whole story. And that makes a lot of sense, considering I don't know why these two issues are in the same volume. I guess because they both are different people teaming up that is it they don't i don't think these two belong in the same issue but i like both stories this almost feels like this should have been a classic backup issue oh that's a great point i love that oh 100 percent. it's basically just a classic issue it's twin character not in the main narrative ancillary side story with a character from their past who's also in the Marvel Universe, which this was actually one of my first questions that I never brought up, but I did think about it. It was in the back of my mind of Storm is from Africa, she and she's treated as a goddess. We didn't touch on it, but that's where Wakanda is. So it made sense in my head, okay, would they have ever interacted? I feel like they would have had to at some point, even though Wakanda was hidden. It's something in my mind was like, those two make sense to team up. And, and then, lo and behold, we have this story. As you've seen in Marvel Team-Up, and even some of the stranger issues we've covered, like the Iron Man annual featuring random handfuls of the champions, or Marvel Villains Team-Up, it was not unusual for a very Skittles, Taste of the Rainbow, assorted blend of characters to be tossed into a collection, and, oh look, that's a team-up now. Black Panther and Storm make a lot more sense than most team-ups do, and I do love these two getting this spotlight. I think this, though, is beginning to push my limits on how many backstory surprise, oh, Storm's already met that person's I'm willing to accept, because there's the Xavier battle against Shadow King, where she first meets Xavier as a child. It's just getting to be a little bit man. Storm did a lot as a kid. Oh, and she was an Olympic-level gymnast as a child, which we learned against Nanny. Storm as a kid is better traveled and more experienced than just about any adult I've ever met. Yeah, you know, Storm likes to talk about her tragic backstory of being an orphan, but, like, shit, she's already experienced a lot more than, like, Colossus has. Well, Colossus just can't wait to get back to his tractor. (laughs) I agree with you. I think... There's only so many more characters you could put into someone's backstory before you're like, Storm conceivably met the entire Marvel Universe before there was an entire Marvel Universe. As far as characters going together, I completely agree. I think these two make sense together. 
I think they can complement each other well in battle. And honestly, not much more than I wish the villain was slightly more than just generic. I don't need another evil robot that tends to be a villain type that Marvel goes to when they need something villain of the weekish. Absolutely. If you've been playing along at home with the Uncanny X's for podcast, drink every time there's an evil computer or a robot possessed in some way, I'm so sorry about your liver damage because. This is getting to be a little too much. In fact, that's probably my one complaint about this story. I feel like this isn't the best vehicle for Storm and T'Challa, who are both far more clever than this story gives either one of them room to be. The art is lovely, as John Byrne is still at the top of his uncanny X-Men game. I am greatly enjoying the interaction between Storm and Black Panther, but at the end of the day, I don't know that I gained anything from this story. The only thing I gained is that I have a new ship that I would love to see together as a couple. Mm, That's interesting. I'll keep that in mind. From the Dark Phoenix saga, you couldn't really figure out where they could possibly go next. And it was a lot of fun to read this Marvel team up. But sequentially, the next uncanny X-Men story is Nightcrawler's Inferno, in which Nightcrawler dies on, like, the fourth page. So... Immediately, you can't take it seriously. You know Nightcrawler didn't really just die in the middle of the fourth page of the first real story after the Dark Phoenix saga. But this whole thing opened up on your boy Kurt. Jonah, tell me. Tell me about the issue in which you found out Nightcrawler's banging his sister. (laughs) Okay. I love a Kurt-centric story. I love delving into the past of Kurt. This very much reads as character arc and we're going to put in all of his backstory in this, and we think we get a lot of Kirk's backstory, then more than we've ever had. And I don't mind that. I think I was just confused throughout the entire issue, because Doctor Strange, Stephen Strange, keeps commenting that this isn't really hell, but they very much perceive it to be. So I'm very confused as to where they are, how powerful of a villain that they're fighting, what the goal is, why everything still seems exactly the same as Dante's Inferno. I think, right idea, I don't know if they fully hit the mark for me. I agree. The Dante Inferno stuff is really heavy-handed here. It's part of a larger game that Claremont is trying to play. It'll come together over time, and it's going to involve a lot of X-Men and take some hundred-something issues to tell. But this is the start of a very magical, bold direction for the Uncanny X-Men that still is around to this day. Doctor Strange's appearance all but seals that there is no way that Nightcrawler is really dead. There are so many unbelievable elements of canon that are introduced here. Mark Golly of The Winding Road is a rather major character. I think it's really terrific that she already begins appearing here. Marvel also has a lot of different definitions of what hell is, and a lot of different the devil and Satan, so it's not too unusual that they are trying to make it clear that this is not actual fire and brimstone hell. It's a little too neat that when Margali finds out that Kurt only slain Stefan out of a promise that Kurt would kill him if he ever went evil, that's a real interesting promise to make, jeez, that she's like, nope, I'm so sorry about it, son, I'm real into you again, I love you, and then, yeah, oh man, Kurt's adoptive sister, who they do 
they make very clear that they had like a playful romantic chemistry and flashbacks going forward. But at the end of the day, we are still talking about some form of incest, and that is still a really bold choice, 1980s X-Men. This is a decision you've made. It was a decision. I agree with you. I think the way it ends, it feels a little rushed. Kurt's adopted mother goes a little from 100 to 0 very fast. It almost feels like a snap, very quick snap, which kind of makes sense because she is going through his memory and there is definite proof that he was told to kill his adopted brother. But still, for someone so powerful and someone so basically one of the largest in life characters we've seen so far i just i just found her underwhelming part of the problem is this issue for the fact that it's an annual and given extra page space has to spend so much consistently explaining what they're doing and where they're going everything does need to get tied up in a neat bow and sort of shipped off to end the story and speaking of tying things up with a neat bow Giving Wolverine an opportunity to clear things up with Department H was a long time coming. I can't believe it's the first sequential issue of Uncanny after the Dark Phoenix Saga, and that it opens on a splash page of Angel, followed by a double splash page of Angel Colossus, Wolverine, Storm, and Xavier training. This is like, this is burn art porn. They're just giving us these big, beautiful images, and I feel like we're keying into the X-Men again. As much as the Dark Phoenix Saga is a high point in storytelling, it definitely takes you way out of the X-Men's regular adventures and sends you on this larger-than-life, bigger-than-death mission. And as soon as we're back home, we're just running around the mansion having a good time. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. One thing of good note is that Wolverine has a new costume, and I love it. I love the new colors. I love where it shows skin. I think it's very fitting for him. Oh, Wolverine in your brown burn costume. I love this costume. This costume sticks around for a nice long time. He rocks this costume until he rocks a version of the blue and yellow, where sometimes it's black and yellow one again. This is such an iconic shift for the X-Men, and I think it's a dynamic change, because so much of the symbolism we discussed in Dark Phoenix Saga involved gene and color, and how color reflects who they are at the time, and I think it's really interesting that Logan has gone from his bright, bold colors to these darker colors. The last time we saw the Uncanny X-Men in Marvel Team-Up 100, Logan was still in his yellow costume. So this is a really great new start to his look, as he was also in the yellow costume in the annual. Yeah, it's a bold new way for the new era of X-Men that we're paving the way for right now. We see a subtle change with colors for Wolverine, and we see a much larger change in role in that Storm is now the new appointed leader of the X-Men. And this just makes absolute sense out of everyone who's left. She's the only one who I would trust. Colossus, I don't think, has the maturity yet to be a leader. Wolverine's a little too hot-headed and Kurt's a little too playful. And Warren has been out of commission with the X-Men for so long. As we see, he struggles with the Danger Room. Storm is the only one that makes sense to me. She's also the most powerful. I truly believe the only member of the team who could currently give any real challenge to the mantle of leader would be Logan. 
and Logan recognizing that Storm is more even-keeled is one of their things that makes Logan a great member of the X-Men. Making Logan leader, it needs to be the right situation, he needs to be the only possible person for the job. Really, seriously, he needs to be the only possible person. But deferring to Storm indicates that he understands that the X-Men are a group, and they all have to play a part. Bringing Nightcrawler with him also shows that it's important that he accept help. Truly, he could go back to Canada and try and face this thing alone, but a little backup never hurt anybody. And in this case, they're going to need all the backup they can get. The Wendigo has gone up against the Hulk before, as the very convenient summary shows us. Now, you don't really need to show that kind of summary. People can just look up the issue online. But here, that was the clearest, cleanest way to tell what happened in Incredible Hulk 180 and 181. The cliffhanger of this issue is really weak, that it's just sort of like, oh, nope, Wendigo's gonna come get Kurt. Is Kurt gonna get away? Oh, but no, is he gonna die? No, Kurt's not gonna die. Not gonna... Kurt's not not gonna die. Not again. Not, not, Kurt, not. Not, not, Kurt, not, not. The choice of the villain, the Wendigo, is pretty interesting because that is a Canadian cryptid. That is the Canadian Sasquatch. And I think having that as a Canadian villain for the Alpha Flight team slash Wolverine makes pretty good sense. It also makes sense that he's very much power level wise similar to Hulk. So I'm like, okay, you really got me on board with that with the correct use of mythology and it making geological sense. It's not like we're somewhere in Europe and this is the that's the villain. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Right, they're not trying to battle the Chupacabra in Bangor, Maine. Exactly. I completely agree with you. I think this issue really showcases Logan being a team player, knowing which rules he has to follow, and Logan just saying, okay, you know, my genie died, but I still got my fuzzy little elf. And I think he's just kind of picking up the pieces of his life and realizing if he wants to be an X-Men, he's got unfinished business he has to take care of. And I respect that about Logan. I think it was the appropriate amount of time since we last saw the Alpha Flight team till now to where Logan would have to say, okay, I really do need to tie up this loose end. At this point, Alpha Flight had begun popping up throughout the Marvel Universe, ultimately getting their own series in just a few short years, written and drawn by John Byrne. We're going to be covering that series in the upcoming episodes of Uncanny X's for Podcast, and I couldn't be more excited. That said, I don't really love the conclusion of this issue. I think the Wendigo stuff kind of ends with one of those familiar Claremont just makes things bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful. But we get two incredible pieces of characterization that I think are so essential to the bigger picture of the narrative that Claremont is trying to weave at this point. We get the Logan flashback, which is just about more about Logan's past than I think we've ever gotten before. And it's just sandwiched in the middle of this story. And it's incredible. We see him interact with people other than the X-Men. And, oh man, it's one page, but it tells us so much. And the other bit that I find really fascinating is Aurora's jealousy at Kitty's quick connection with dance instructor Stevie Hunter, who is also going to be a mainstay in the New Mutants. So this has been an all-around great episode for the New Mutants. It's pretty interesting. We haven't really seen Storm jealous with anyone because Storm has been the only mother figure that they've had. Jean never really took on that role of matronly, though she does call some of the X-Men her siblings. Storm is very motherly, and that makes sense as the goddess. Absolutely, I agree. There's something very 
maternal about Storm in a way that there is something much more sororal about Jean. Jean's always the little sister you want to look out for, but Storm's going to look out for you. And this is the first time that Storm has been challenged for someone who she's taken a very quick kinship to. You see, she's very protective of Kitty, where she's so protective that she snaps at her for using her powers in public. Though Kitty's like, it's no big thing. It's fine. I checked. So having Storm having those new emotions that she hasn't dealt with before, or we, we haven't seen her deal with before, is really interesting. Storm is very much visited by that little green monster. And is her intuition about Stevie actually right because Stevie might be dangerous? Or is it just because there's a different really cool woman in Kitty's life that she doesn't want to share? And so much of Storm's behavior can be contextualized by having just lost her best friend. The Dark Phoenix Saga was an incredible situation, not just for Jean and Scott, but for the entire team. Logan immediately looking to connect with his past ties directly into the Dark Phoenix Saga and his needing to heal from losing Jean. While Nightcrawler could not control that his birthday fell just after the Dark Phoenix Saga, Nightcrawler gets answers about his past as well. Storm's past is... A more complicated tapestry, as we've discussed, because of all of the different ways she experienced life as a young mutant, as a goddess, as a pickpocket. And we find Storm at a crossroads. She's always been maternal, but this is the first time she's truly had a young charge. And from that first day, she felt a bond with her. And it's already being challenged. Now that they're on her home turf, her home turf, which has been irrevocably changed, Scott's left, Jean's gone, Warren, who had only ever really been a passing note, is becoming a fixture. There's so much dynamic change in the X-Men right now. Storm needs to find a way to hold it all together. And man, are some big changes coming. I agree. It's pretty interesting to see what this change means for the X-Men. I think we even see a little bit with it with Colossus. He's just, instead of brooding about not being in Russia with his family and being on the farm, he's kind of making his own farm. He's happily just doing the work he would do as a farmhand. And if that's what he needs to do, that's what he needs to do. Colossus came a little more confident and a little more not so much sad boy but a little more partial sad boy. I really think that's a great perspective. I hadn't looked at it that way, but now that you say it, I can't unsee it. Colossus is finding the things in life that make him happy, and he's bringing them front and center. The X-Men's overall response to losing Jean Grey is to begin to embrace their lives and confront their pasts before they don't have the opportunity. That's definitely the effect of the Phoenix. X-Rex with Matthew. Here at X is for Podcast, we've had an incredible time telling you all about the 1970s and 80s in Marvel, but there's a whole lot more than that available for Marvel Comics, especially on the Marvel Unlimited app. For that, we're going to be turning to our friend Matthew to bring you X-Rex, every uncanny episode. Take it away, Matthew. Hey everybody, my name is Matthew, and this is X-Rex, my own little corner of the podcast world where I recommend an issue or story arc from the wild world of X-Men. Today I'm bringing you a series that is near and dear to my heart, and anyone who knows me knew this was going to be the first recommendation, the first arc of Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, issues number 1 through 6. This was the series that got me into superhero comics in the first place, and started my lifelong love affair with Emma Frost and Kitty Pride. There's a shipping joke to be made here, but I'm a classier fellow than that. You can be sure I'll be discussing the other three arcs somewhere down the line, assuming Nico doesn't boot me off of the podcast somewhere along the way. But for now, let's 
get into it. This arc, and the run as a whole, are these characters at their best, save for maybe Wolverine, who is fairly one note for most of the run. Though, to be fair, it's not a bad note. Cyclops is a forward-thinking leader, Emma is clever, caring, and snarky, Kitty is the heart of the team, and Beast is actually funny and insightful rather than the mess he's developed into in later years. And a surprise return character is back from the dead and being pissed. It also introduces a number of characters who have stuck around in X-Lore and beyond, all the way up through today with varying degrees of significance. Abigail Brand, the head of S.W.O.R.D., Armor, aka Hisako Ishiki, though she doesn't get her codename until the final arc of Whedon's run, Order of the Break World, who will show up later, Blindfold, and Dr. Kavita Rao, who, bless her soul, was included in the third X-Men movie and has somehow survived the experience to continue on in comics. Brandon Armour especially continued to get some quality love for Marvel, with Brand even getting a fairly significant role in one of the more recent runs of Captain Marvel. What I particularly love about this arc, and the series overall, besides the Whedon banter, is how accessible it is. Like I said, this was my first foray into Marvel comics. I knew about characters like Cyclops and Wolverine and the like because of general pop culture osmosis, but I was in no way well versed in the history and lore, yet there was no difficulty in grasping what Whedon was doing in this story. Any relevant history that is referenced is done so with enough context to be understood. Don't get me wrong. Rereading this after having a stronger background in X history, especially the immediately preceding run by Grant Morrison, is especially helpful. But there is no prior reading required to fully understand and enjoy this book. If you have access to the Omnibus, though, there is a thorough primer at the beginning, and really, that book is the best $50 I have ever spent. But also, yes, the banter. It is as Whedon-y and wonderful as you'd expect, with beautiful moments throughout. There is a scene where Beast argues with Wolverine about a mutant cure and what it could mean for him personally. Wolverine makes the correct counterpoint that the moment any X-Man on the main team, especially essentially a professional mutant, gives in, then it's all over and only a matter of time until the cure is forced on the other mutants. Emma and Dr. Rao share a discussion where the quote-unquote mutant as metaphor for minority is made textual in regards to homosexuality. It's snarky and sarcastic and it's dead on. These are the moments that make X-Men as long-lasting and relatable as it is. Snark and laser beams are great, but grounding it in real issues, or their metaphorical equivalents, is what keeps it interesting. Kavita saying that nobody is going to be forced to take the cure is optimistic at best, and she clearly isn't a villain. She worked on this cure with the best of intentions, to help people with uncontrollable or awful mutations. Here's looking at you, Beak. But Emma is right. Mutants will suffer because of this. It's only a matter of time before Kavita is wrong, and mutants are forced into taking the cure. And then what quote-unquote disease is next? How far will this go? Kavita says homosexuality isn't a threat to mankind, and Emma correctly quips back that they're clearly watching different televangelists. And what is the right answer? The cure itself is gone by the end of the arc, but the questions it raised are still there. Say what you will about Joss Whedon as a person, but he is a master of dialogue, character development, and ensemble casts, and this series is a glowing example of all of that. In terms of the art, John Cassidy's admittedly takes a few issues to really hit his stride. It isn't bad at the beginning by any stretch. But by the end of the arc, it is, in a word, astonishing. And by the end of the run, it's frankly gorgeous. His cover for issue 5 is hanging on my wall because I love it so darn much, if that gives you any indication. That's it for today, before I lose my ability to resist is giving a full play-by-play -play of the story. Happy reading, and I'll be back next time with something dark and stabby. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at UppityLittleHomo, where I post all sorts of geekery, cats, well, one cat, comics, and overly revealing cosplay. Have fun! Also, Lockheed is the strongest X-Man. Fight me. Mutant Mental Health with Dr. Matt. Here at X is for Podcast, we're not just about the fun of the X-Men comics, but we're also about the well-being of the X-Men reading audience. It is to that end that we are excited to announce our newest feature, featuring Dr. Matthew James Connor. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Connor, and this is a tiny dose of Merry Mutant Mental Health. I'm a gay psychiatrist in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm the panel director for the NC Comic Con shows in Greensboro, Durham, and Raleigh. Nico asked me to talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics they'll be reading on X's for Podcast. So, here we go.
In this pair of issues, we get to know Kitty Pride as an X-Man, having joined the team after being that kid that they rescued in the Dark Phoenix Saga. Kitty is a beloved character. She stands in for the reader. She is a great example for us to talk about what adolescence means from a mental health perspective. Kitty is an adolescent, and this is a time period in like middle school, high school, college, where people stop looking to their parents for who they're supposed to be and start looking to their peers. It's a time when our families expand from our blood relations to tribes of people our age. They help us understand the rules of our society. They point out what's praiseworthy in us and what's kind of embarrassing. And y'all, poor Kitty is doing this in this house of aggressive mutants who are all significantly older than she is. And she is going to try to be clever and she's going to try to be flirtatious and she's going to try, oh God, so many different costumes. But the X-Men are going to keep on loving her because of who she is, not because she tried the right thing and is suddenly worthy of love. We are all loved for who we are not what we do. And adolescence is a time where people start to learn that. And by the end of it, they settle into this more stable sense of themselves. A lot of us build identities based on what we think other people want to see. And we get rewarded for that if we guess right. We fit in, we get loved. It's pretty cool. But it's dependent on us reading the group around us right. And it's dependent on that group being consistent and right. Kitty is with some decently moral people. That's pretty great. She's getting praise for being smart, for being brave. That's awesome. But remember that her peers in the White Queen's Hellions are getting rewarded for being manipulative and cruel. It works in any way. This is kind of a judgment-free direction. Readers, be on the lookout for what happens when Kitty's character gets a friend her own age, Doug Ramsey. For an adolescent, one of the things that we have to learn is how to evaluate our friend groups. We all want love that is normal, that is human, or mutant in this case. And if we want to grow up into people that we're proud of, we have to be able to check who is giving us this love. And it is okay to get this wrong. Friend groups are going to change over time. Even as adults, we're going to change over time. Kitty is going to change teams. Sometimes she's an X-Men. She's almost a new mutant. She'll join Excalibur. The thing that she has to learn, the thing that she has to do to get through this adolescent period is to learn who she is when nobody is giving her a goal star for being so darn precocious and capable. And that's going to help her to become the amazing leader that we're going to see in a few years in books like Excalibur and X-Men Gold. I have a lot more to say about identity, but I think I want to save that for future topics of Mary Mutant Mental Health. You can follow me on Instagram at Matthew James Connor. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R for, I don't know, mostly cosplay and cute pictures of my dog. Okay, see you next week. And that's it. That's all new, all different, uncanny X's for podcast and X-Men reading experience variety shows relaunch. We got some incredible X-Men recommendations from Matthew Scott, and we had an incredible check-in by mental health expert Dr. Matt Connor, who reminded us it's okay to feel. I'm actually really excited for so much of what we're doing, and I promise we are adding people that aren't named Matt. And next, no, next week we'll not have someone not named Matt added. But hey, Jonah, it was not just amazing to get back to the X Men, but it was amazing to kind of reset things on the mutant verse and our show a little bit too. This is 23 episodes in and something like a hundred issues. Where's your head at on our new show? You know, just like the X-Men, we're ever-changing, and I'm so excited for what we have to come and what we have for you guys. My head's at, like, just us. Is Where are the heights that we can soar with this? Where can we take this? Where can the X-Men go? We have a new leader. We have a new teammate. We have new dynamics. We have new everything. So now it's just, where do they want to take this? What is their idea for the X-Men? And for our final new feature here, we're going to...
to talk a little bit about our number one takeaways. In all of the material we're reading, sometimes eight, ten issues an episode, it can be hard to zero in on a biggest thing. But we're going to try and make it a little bit easier by each pointing out a highlight that stood out for us. My big takeaway this episode was that the Uncanny X-Men have changed so dynamically as a team, there just isn't room for an original X-Man anymore. Once Scott and Jean left at the end of 138, the book underwent a radical transformation, where the Claremont all-new, all-different giant-size X-Men now are the old-timers, and they have new X-Men and new characters joining them. Trying to insert Angel here, he just sticks out like a sore thumb. While Claremont has used him before, like in the Dark Phoenix saga, it doesn't feel organic. Angel will stick around for a while, but other than mostly being tortured, he doesn't contribute a whole lot to the X-Men in the coming months. My big takeaway is that the uncanny X-Men are no longer the strangest teens of all time, and they don't have patience for standing still. Jonah, what was your big takeaway? Well, Angel seems to stick out like a sore thumb. I actually took away from this that Kitty fits just in. I think she was the ex-member that they didn't want, but they absolutely needed. Despite her being young, I think she's clever. She's quick-witted. She's everything that you need to be to be an X-Men and fit just right into this family. And I'm super excited to see her grow as a person and as a mutant. And grow she will. Kitty Pride is not just going to be an X-Men mainstay, but she is going to be the focus point for countless miniseries and a number of spinoffs over the years. So it's really exciting to see the X-Men bring in a new mainstay and continue to reinvent the team in a way that defines it going forward. Jonah, I can't wait to get back to talking about the X-Men with you as next episode will be John Byrne's final episode as well as Days of Future Past. So that's going to be two biggies that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Until then, where can everybody find you online? If you'd like to find me online and interact with me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, I'm so excited for this. Where can all your fans find you? As always, you can find me producing inclusive, diverse comic material at KidRiotComics.com. We're going on five amazing years telling these stories, and we can't wait to bring you guys more. You can also find more of me here on the network at Cage Club. I'm on Now and Again with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we take a look at pop music and the changing landscape as it's reflected in the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can check out my husband and I doing mcu.html as well as phoenix.html, two different looks at the live action and animated adaptations of these amazing comics that we cover here with Kyle, Kevo, Jonah, soon to be Mikey, The Mats, Dylan. We have so many people coming on and I'm so excited. If you enjoy what you're hearing here, you'd probably check out the rest of the network and enjoy that too. So go on over to the Patreon, kick a few dollars that way and pick what comes next. If you like the sound of my voice and you want to see the look of my face, go on to my Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and check me out. Follow me there. All right, Jonah, until it's time to get time traveling with it, we'll see you guys on the other side of the X-Gene. See ya!